presence is the process through which we actually become productive, right? If you're trying to do something, if your intention is to do something, and we, we all have moments like this, often we can't muster the presence to do that. We can't show up. You know, our mind is resisting the task maybe because it's at a lower stimulation height, whatever the reason, right? And the fact of the matter is presence is what productivity is all about. That is where the rubber meets the road. And so much, I'd say 70, 80, maybe even 90% of productivity, maybe 80% of productivity advice is about cultivating the conditions for presence. It's about managing your time, your attention, your energy, which I consider to be the three main ingredients with productivity. Uh, It's managing those in a way that you cultivate the conditions to be able to show up to whatever it is that you intend to do. Those wise words were from Chris Bailey. Chris says, in an anxious world, the path to productivity runs directly through calm. Now, I have done a lot of research on productivity uh, with the goal of just getting the most out of one precious life. I think that's a, that's a very admirable quality, uh, something I'm proud of. And yet, those of us sort of uh, who tend to fidget or are always busy or you know pack our calendars a little bit too full, there's something wrong there too, right, and that, that borders on hustle culture and that is one of the reasons that Chris is a fantastic guest for today. There is a line between uh, productivity and being calm and the relationship, as he said in his cold open there just a moment ago, between presence and our ability to get things done and especially to add meaning to our lives. I just love that. So our conversation today, mine and Chris's, Chris Bailey, He has written a book called How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. We talk about a lot of stuff. Uh, Right near the end of the conversation, we talk about the relationship between all the analog and digital things and how those things intersect and how much better for us in many ways analog is actually on our neurology and on our ability to be present. Digital, of course, is radically more efficient, but it's at the intersection of those two things that maybe the best stuff lives. Um, We talked about our neurological uh, addiction to dopamine now in the the world that we live in and how he explains the ways that we misunderstand dopamine and a whole host of other neurochemicals and how they can help you live the life that you are actually striving for versus the one that we all see on TV and on the internet. Uh, We talk about uh, stimulation and the ups and downs, how it's beneficial in some ways and how it really wears us out in others, how a life of busyness can be a real problem and how busyness and uh, productivity are not necessarily related, and the science of savoring, of being present for a moment and the value that that brings. This and so many more things, yours truly and Chris Bailey. Chris, we did it. Welcome to the show, man. We've done it. We have done it, haven't we? That is it for the day. Have a good day. All right. Thank you for coming to the podcast. (laughs) Welcome. And uh, today we're going to talk about a lot of things. Uh, Where we're going to open the show is um, 
anxiety is an all-time high, and you have uh, written about this at length, which is going to be extremely valuable for our community. But before we go into the details of you, your work, some of your previous books, the most recent one, I would love for you to introduce yourself. It's a great way for our audience to hear how you orient yourself in pop culture, in uh, you know, say some of the things that are important to you, why you run the show. Uh, just give us uh, give us a little intro. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for having me on. And my name is Chris Bailey, and I am an author of books on productivity. And I have a couple of them out. One of them is called The Productivity Project. Uh, the other one is called Hyperfocus. And I have a third one out now called How to Calm Your Mind. And I am fortunate that I get to be a huge nerd for a living. Uh, I write about this stuff that I am deeply curious about. Uh, I let passion and curiosity drive pretty much everything that I do, uh, even at the expense of making money. And I, I've, I'm fortunate that I just get to keep doing this and experiment and dive into the research on these topics that, that I love so much. So, uh, hi, I'm a huge nerd and I like to write books. <laughs> well, I love that. <laughs> Self-identified nerd. With yes. this, uh, Before we get into the topics of these books, productivity, see, when yeah. I think of you, I think of productivity, but it's it's, it's got like a there's always a twist and the most recent book again how to calm your mind we're going to get yeah. into that in a bit but mm -hmm. before we do i'm going to put a pin in that and say okay you got you you said something interesting in the intro which is going to be valuable for our listeners or watchers and that is i get to do what i love yeah you get to go deep and follow your curiosity and mm -hmm. one of the ways that i sometimes like to open the show is to understand how did you discover both the things that you love and that you could actually do them for a living. Yeah. Well, I didn't know I could do this for a living initially. Uh, so I graduated from university with a few full-time job offers. And luckily, in Canada, we can defer our student loans for a year. And I thought, okay, I'm actually going to take advantage of this little deferring program that we have. Uh, so I declined those jobs right after graduating university. I'd done some internships and stuff up to that point where I had this real world experience that I got these job offers from. But I thought, if there's ever a time to actually experiment with something that I'm deeply curious and passionate about, it was then. So decline the jobs to make zero money for a living, to uh, dive as deep into this world of productivity advice as I could. And, you know, what was the impetus for that? Some people are blessed with normal interests. Some people are into sports, photography, music, writing. I have always been obsessed with this idea of becoming as productive as possible. Um, you know, I'm quite lazy. Laziness drives a lot of what I do. So I like to find the shortest path to get to the destination that I want without, without compromising on any of any, anything along the way. Uh, so laziness drives what I do, but also the fact that we only have so much time each and every day uh, to work, to live, to find meaning, to connect with other people, to uh, do work that we're proud of. And so I want to optimize that, given that is such a constraint of our lives over the arc of time. And so it's always been this curiosity. And so I declined the jobs and started what became the book, The Productivity Project. And it was very much a circular project at the time, right? Being productive, writing about productivity. But I was able to begin separating out the fluff from the stuff that actually allows us to make progress. 
And that prioritization has served me through today. These days, it's more looking at the academic literature. It's talking to experts to solve the problems that I'm going through myself, uh, like anxiety, like burnout, uh, like being unable to focus, which was the subject of the second book. Um, And so it's curiosity that drives. So it was that initial risk. It could have easily not turned out. And declining a few jobs to uh, start a blog for a year, which is what it was at the time, it's not a decision that you can easily explain to uh, to grandparents, to parents, to relatives, to a lot of people considering it. But I think it's one of those situations where you know the greater the risk, often the greater return, and often the best decisions are the ones that don't make sense when they're made because the conditions will align down the future to make that decision make sense, and that is precisely what makes it valuable. And that sounds like that worked out reasonably well for you. Yeah. I mean, I think people connected with this approach of being vulnerable. One of the things that bugs me about productivity advice is when somebody, you know, has their pedestal and they they have this uh, holier than thou mentality. Oh, you should listen to me. I am a guru. I am a thought leader. You know, bow down. I've never really been into that kind of approach uh, because we're all human. We're all fallible. We all struggle with this stuff. And uh, and so I like to talk about those struggles and uh, try to overcome them often in public. <laughs> well, this is a, that is the perfect entrance into the work because one of the things that I found the most valuable about your recent work, again, the book title is called How to Calm Your Mind, Yeah, is, as I referenced earlier in our opening, is anxiety and you have been really, you know, really transparent with all your work and you just, you know, double down on that by saying like, I'm not here to, to be free from this and to give you advice that will, you know, that, that is guaranteed to work 100% of the time. Yeah. And so my, you know, my entree into this material is going to be, why did you write about anxiety and how to contrast that anxiety with, making your mind calm such that yeah. you can do the things that you want to do in a productive and meaningful way. Yeah. And I think that's the key. Do the things that you want to do. Uh, you know, in exploring this topic of productivity, I've come to realize that what lives at the heart of productivity, it's not about hustling, doing more and more and more, faster, faster, faster. It's about doing the right things deliberately. And it's really intentionality that lies at the core of uh, of productivity. But what what you'll find is the more anxious you become, the less productive you also become. Uh, a good example or illustration of this is if I told you, okay, Chase, you know, you, you have to give a, an important presentation to these 5,000 people in half an hour. Uh, but, you know, before you do, do you mind, you know, reading this report that I have prepared for you on something that's totally different? You're, you're probably going to find it difficult to focus in the moment and be present with that report when you have that upcoming threat, you know, that that upcoming presentation that you have to do. Uh, airline turbulence is an, another kind of situation where when we hit a pocket of airline turbulence, we often have to rewind the movie we're watching or reread the last few paragraphs of the book that we're reading or remember what window we're browsing in on our computer when we hit that threat. And anxiety has a comparable effect on our mind where it shrinks our cognitive capacity and leads us to get significantly less done. And often it it sneaks up on us where it's 
kind of like boiling a frog in reverse. I don't know if that analogy makes sense now that I think of it, because what, how can you boil something? At, but anyway, it, it's, it's kind of like if your cognitive capacity is like 100% today and next week it's 99% and the week after it's 98%, you're still functioning on a relatively full load, but it diminishes slowly over time. And anxiety is kind of a similar way where this undercurrent of anxiety that permeates its way through our life, we're always looking for threats when we're in that threat-finding mentality, which shrinks our cognitive capacity, but does so slowly over time, which leads us to become far less aware that we're anxious in the first place. And this is something that I found in my own work and in my own life. Uh, It boiled over for me when I was on stage giving a presentation uh, in front of about 100 people. I I got up on stage and I, I noticed maybe five minutes, 10 minutes into my talk that beads of sweat started to form on the back of my neck, kind of that little crook there. Um, And at the same time, I felt as though there were a dozen marbles in my mouth that my tongue had to dance around. And all the meanwhile, I kind of got dizzy at the same time and realizing in that moment I was having uh, an anxiety attack on stage. I was in this uh, fight, flight, or freeze response. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. I wanted to leave and not come back. And it was very much that boiling a frog in reverse. I'm doubling down on this analogy, Chase. Go for it. Doubling Lean into down. it. Leaning into it. Uh, I didn't notice it was sneaking up on me until it was too late, uh, until I perceived a talk, which I do all the time for work, uh, as this threatening event that my mind or and my body couldn't mobilize to overcome. And that was the original impetus that sent me on the course to write this book, How to Calm Your Mind. Uh, I remember after this event, I was in, in the hotel room. It was one of those hotel rooms that has two beds, even though it's just you staying there. I don't know how many people use these rooms with two beds, one for the luggage, one for you. Uh, and I remember just lying down on one of the beds thinking like, I I am not in a good place right now. And I don't know what needs to change. I don't know really what is happening. And I didn't form an entire picture of what was happening. I didn't have the awareness to do so at that time. But this was the impetus in realizing that something needed to change that led me through the research on anxiety, on burnout, led me to talk to experts and researchers around the world led me to conduct experiments on myself to look at the actual research. Because uh, not to go on uh, too long with this answer, but I, I was investing in a lot of self-care strategies at the time. Um, and I actually thought I was doing a really good job of it. Uh, I was meditating every day. I was taking baths on the road. I'm a big bath kind of fella. I, I love uh, you know, ordering takeout food when I'm on the road. I go to the spa with my wife. I thought I was doing a good job of self-care, but yet... that anxiety metastasized into a full-blown anxiety attack on stage. And that disconnect is what sparked this project. I didn't intend to write this book, but I'm grateful for the journey that I went on and I felt I needed to share these ideas in, in the hopes that they help other people as much as they've helped me. Well, this... Thank you for sharing that, first of all, because the way that we come to work um, is always, it's always fascinating to me, um, the creative person that I am. I'm, I'm fascinated how we choose to do the things that we choose with our time. Yeah. Uh, and 
also this, how universal your challenges are. And yeah, yeah. this is the thing about creative work, right? We, we, these things are deeply personal to us because you experience that fright, that pain, the, the anxiety on stage, the, 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 the anxiety attack. And yet there are, I'm going to say thousands of people who are listening or watching right now that have gone through the exact same thing. Yeah. And yeah, you know, one, this is a message that, you know, in, what is it, the James Joyce, in the particular lies the universal. So in your case, mm-hmm. you, you. That's a beautiful have, quote. Yeah. You, you have done this work. Um, presumably, I was going to say so that we don't have to do it, but the book that you have created on this, again, the most recent one, how to calm your mind. One of the things that I love is this, the tools. And yeah. it makes me want to go. Before we go to the tools, just let's do a little bit of background on sort of neurochemically, um, you know, what are the components of anxiety and, um, you know, how does modern life basically (laughs) is a farm for these anxiety chemicals, Uh, you know, before we, before we solve them, let's understand a little bit more about the problem that we are all dealing with. Yeah, for sure. And it's so true, and I think that's one of the most remarkable parts about my own story is just how unremarkable it is, how universal it is, especially when the modern world that we find ourselves in is not structured around calm. It's about the pursuit of more. The The pursuit of more winds itself through so much of what we do, uh, and so does the pursuit of stimulation. And those two factors, the fact that you know, and the the those two factors have a common neurolog neurological underpinning, which is dopamine. And dopamine is a very misunderstood neurochemical. And I think you know, looking at the research on dopamine, looking at the the journal articles on it, I think anybody that pretends to fully understand this chemical uh, isn't really admitting you know that we don't understand the whole picture. The research doesn't understand the whole picture, and Dopamine is essential to living a good life. Our body needs it to function. And we also release dopamine when we do creative work, uh, when we're focused on something, when we're making progress on something. Uh, But we release other chemicals alongside these activities that lead us to a presence in what we're doing, like serotonin, which leads us to feel proud of of what we've done, Um, oxytocin, which leads us to feel connected with other people, endorphins that lead us to a rush, like when we go for a run or do a stretch or have a good cry. these are what make us feel human. Uh, but dopamine, you know, the best research that I found on it, so I should preface it by saying that, has found that dopamine is a, a chemical not of pleasure. We think of dopamine as a pleasure chemical, but in practice, it is what leads us to feel as though pleasure is almost there. It's a chemical of anticipation that drives us forward. And there's even a mechanism in our mind called the novelty bias, by which for every new and novel thing we direct our attention at, our mind rewards us with a a spritz of this this neurochemical. So we wake up, we hop over to Instagram, we get a hit of dopamine. We feel as though pleasure is on the way, and so we continue on. Uh, Maybe we check email after that, we get another spritz of the chemical. Then after that, we uh, go back to Instagram, then we check Twitter, then we check the news, bouncing around in this dopamine-fueled feedback loop. Uh, 
But what this does is this leads our mind to be overstimulated. And what we always want to do, we always want to stay at the same level of stimulation as we currently are. And so if we start our day off, you know, you, just as an experiment, you know, this is something that everybody can try, speaking of that tactical level. Uh, for one week, have your phone by your night, on your nightstand. Have it wake you up, uh, turn on notifications, deal with what comes in in the morning. And then the week after that, just buy an old-fashioned alarm clock, uh, you know, or maybe wake up to your smart speaker if you trust that or the, the smart device on your wrist and have a book on your nightstand instead. And for until maybe 8 a.m., don't connect to the internet and see the difference in stimulation level and what the difference that makes in how you work and how you live and how much presence you have with the world around you. Uh, you know, if it's intentionality and deliberateness that lies at the core of what it means to be product, productive, you know, these calm mornings really do lead us to deliberate days, right? When we start the day off on a calm note, we stay at that calm note and we find it easier to become uh, present in whatever we're doing. Uh, but it's this constant craving for more uh, that's built around the, uh, the neurochemical dopamine, as well as this constant need for stimulation, especially the super stimuli that we are surrounded by, <clears throat> you know, which are highly processed versions of things that we're biologically wired to enjoy. So pornography is a highly processed artificial version of something of intimate time with a partner, which we're biologically wired to enjoy. Uh, takeout food is this artificially created salty, sugary, fatty uh, thing that is an artificial version of something that grows in nature. You know, the sweetness of berries, uh, for example. Um, a lot of super stimuli on the internet. The news is a highly uh, often artificial novel uh, novelty is cranked through the roof with the news uh, version of something that we're wired to enjoy, which is, uh, you know, anything that directly we perceive as directly affecting our life. Uh, and so it, it's a complicated picture. And it's one that, you know, I've fortunately had a, a, a several years to deconstruct, especially in the book. But it, this, this pursuit of dopamine provides the neurochemical underpinnings of this modern day anxiety. Uh, but this, this anxiety in the first place is also a fascinating phenomenon, especially as calm is related. Because when I, when I started searching for calm in writing this book, uh, I was looking for a definition from the research. But the, one of the most fascinating things that I found in this pursuit of calm is that calm is not something that is studied. By researchers. It doesn't have a commonly agreed upon clinical definition. Um, but the best evidence that we do have about this topic shows that calm is the polar opposite of anxiety. And in fact, these two phenomena uh, exist on the same spectrum as one another. So by default, what going into this research process, I, I, I thought of anxiety as something we either have a lot of or we have none of. But in fact, it exists on a spectrum along with calm. So high anxiety is on one side of the spectrum and high calmness is on the other side of the spectrum. So we can go past the point of having no anxiety to acquire more calm. Uh, to have a not only a less stimulated mind by all the things in the world that stimulate us, but 
also by relating to that lack of stimulation in a positive way. Uh, that's what calm is, those two factors, stimulation versus that relation to our thoughts. Um, you know, in bringing calm into our life, we develop more of a resilience, a capacity for taking on stressful things in the first place. And it's, the, it's this fascinating idea that was so delightful to uncover. This is, so I'm going to interject here because this, the capacity, um, the human capacity, the potential that we have, if we're on this sort of anxiety, calm spectrum yeah. and our put essentially our, our potential has to be then on the other side of navigating this thing. Because yeah. if we are anxious and we are in fight or flight or yeah. uh, freeze, freeze yeah. um, there's no way to be, to be our best. Now yeah. living anxious free or anxiety free is also probably not a reality because there's a, reasonable biological underpinning for at least some oh, anxiety. Yeah. Like we have to, we're social yeah. creatures. We do need to, you know, fit in. We also as creators and entrepreneurs, we do need to stand out and there's tension there. And so there's plenty, there's plenty yeah. of tension in there, but I think, you know, my understanding of your work is that we want to be intentional about this. Yeah. So if anxiety is sort of a, throws the brakes on it, calm, yeah. it gets us closer to our potential or our awareness, our ability to focus and be in the moment, focus yeah. being some of your earlier work. Mm-hmm. Why, give me a, give me a, why, you know, why is calm so effective? You just went through this neurological yeah. of why yeah. anxiety is bad. Let's yeah. do the opposite. Why is calm good? Yeah, because I think funny. there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there that are like, oh, when I'm pumped up, that's when I'm gonna be at my best. And when I'm angry at the other team or yeah. one of my teammates, that's gonna, <laughs> you know, it's like, but yeah. why, why is why is if these are on the same spectrum, then you know, why is calm good for human potential? Yeah. You know, there there is some something there, you know, where we do need to be fired up. This is not an argument against being fired up. And often what leads us to calm in the longer arc of the time, of time uh, is what leads us to present in the present moment. You know, it's anything that leads us to feel proud and connected in addition to stimulated, mentally stimulated. So there is this disconnect between these different kind of layers of time where what leads us to this, um, this accomplishment over the long arc of time and this satisfaction with our life uh, is what leads us to present in the present moment. And you actually see this in the subject of uh, burnout too. And and I think there's a a relationship with uh, stress here as well. So we essentially have two types of stress that we face throughout the day. And folks have probably heard of of these types of stress before. We have acute stress, which is the once-off stress that's annoying to get through, but once we get to the other side of it, we're done. It's the the once-off vacation that uh, that we're late for. It's the Thanksgiving meal we're uh, cooking for our family. It's the the thing that's going wrong that we grow from (laughs) later on. And uh, acute stress is fascinating um, because if you were to go back through your life and eliminate all of these sources of acute stress, the things that you know fire you up in the moment uh, and that lead you to grow, you'd probably remove much of the meaning from your life too. You know, if you took out the stressful events, 
there goes your wedding. There goes your honeymoon. There goes, uh, you know, the loss of a loved one that was painful, but that you grew from and, and became a, a different and better person. Uh, there goes your growth. There goes your meaning. Uh, acute stress sucks when we're in it, but it's kind of like, um, you know, there's a quote from Sonia Libomirsky, I think, where she said that vacations are not perfect, but we remember them as perfect. Uh, I think a similar thing can be said about acute stress, where it's it's never great when we're in it, but we look back on it as a meaningful element of our life. So there's acute stress, and then there's the chronic stress, the stuff that never ends. It, instead of the you know, financial hardship from a recession uh, that's once off that we got through and grew from and built a more resilient business and career. Uh, It's the constant financial concerns we have whenever we open our bank account. Uh, Instead of the once off argument that led us to grow, it's the, the irreconcilable feelings we have when we see our partner or a loved one. And this is the danger when it comes to uh, engagement and, and burnout, especially. You know, burnout is a phenomenon that is caused by one thing and one thing only, and that is chronic stress. You know, and, and burnout, in fact, is defined as the ultimate manifestation of chronic stress, especially in a workplace type of environment. Of course, we get burnt out because of the chronic stress that comes from home, uh, our home life as well. And th- this, this, that's the danger, I think, especially when we face so many uh, hidden forms of chronic stress. So, you know, you can break it down further within that chronic stress. Acute stress, you know, meaning. But chronic stress is not good. We, we can kind of break it down between the sources of it, though, that are obvious and that are hidden. You know, the, the things that are threats to our mind that we turn to because of dopamine, kind of connecting this to what we were just chatting about. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm looking and, to make that connection. Yeah, and and so the news is a really good example of this. Uh, we often pay attention to the news by choice, uh, refreshing it throughout the day, even though our ancient mind perceives that as a threat. Uh, there, there's one study I encountered over the course of writing How to Calm Your Mind that was conducted on the 2013 Boston Marathon bombings. And the team of researchers looked at two groups of people. Uh, the first group of people were runners in the marathon. And the second group of people were those who watched six or more hours of news coverage about the Boston Marathon bombings. And what the researchers found was that those who watched the news coverage, not who were in the marathon, experienced more stress from the event and were more likely to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder than somebody who was in the marathon and personally affected by it. Um, Social media, is a similar phenomenon where we choose to pay attention to it. But if you break down the proportion of stimuli on social media that your mind perceives as a threat, it's a relatively high proportion of things. It's, you know, updates that conflict with our values that lead to engagement because we're fired up and angry over them. But the fascinating thing, to, to go back to the original question, we're going on a little journey here. No, this is beautiful. Yeah, you know, to, to go back to the original question, um, burnout is a fascinating phenomenon because it too exists on a spectrum. So burnout is a phenomenon that uh, has three characteristics associated with it. Uh, we're exhausted, we're, we're cynical, and we're unproductive. And these three attributes of burnout, we need all three to be fully burnt out. 
exhaustion is not burnout. As I found it, you know, that that was a surprising lesson for me too. And, in, in, you know, diagnosing my own situation, we also need to feel cynical and unproductive and as though we feel like what we're doing doesn't make a difference. So these three are things are stepping stones to a full burnout phenomenon, but the opposite of burnout is engagement. So when you flip those three characteristics around, instead of exhausted, we're fired up. Instead of feeling uh, like we're not making a difference, like we're unproductive, we feel as though we're moving things forward. Uh, Instead of being cynical, there is a a light in what we do and in what we create. And that's the fascinating thing is we... Over time, because we have this hidden chronic stress in our life, we move closer towards the burnout side of the spectrum automatically without awareness that we are. It's another one of these, I'm doubling down yet again, Chase, uh, boiling this frog in reverse. The, these little things that, that sneak up on us over time. Uh, and really overcoming chronic stress in this way, it doesn't just lead us to get away from burnout. It also leads us to that engagement, which over the longer arc of time leads us to calm. Because in the moment, what leads us to become present with what we're doing, what leads us to that flow-like state where we're fully focused on whatever's in front of us or whomever is in front of us, that leads us to calm overall because that causes a more balanced uh, release of neurochemicals in our mind. Uh, and so it's really about the longer arc of time. It's, and it, it is a complex picture that, that does involve burnout, but there is that connection with chronic stress that causes anxiety and burnout at the same time. And so I think what we're optimizing for is that engagement in the moment that leads to a presence and calm and deliberateness overall. And we feel like there's meaning behind what we do when, when that's the case. Yeah. There's this, um, neurochemically, I'm, you know, we could sort of define the cocktail, but mm-hmm. I think that everyone who's listening has experienced that flow state, a sense of connectedness yeah. and a sense of meaning. And if we really are chasing that, you know, and again, at the core of your work is this intention, like that's, yeah, that is the rationale for seeking calm because calm is connected to those times where you are the most connected, where you are the most fulfilled and productive and flow states come more easily. Um, Question here, this isn't meant to be a curveball, but I'm also (laughs) like, there's a, there's, there are people who are listening. Yeah. Who, uh, or yeah, maybe even we can, we can include this up front in the, the show today because there are people who don't believe there are other people in my life that I have heard say these things like, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not really anxious or I don't feel anxiety. Yeah. And I observe that they are categorically full of shit. <laughs> like I observe it. I'm like, you can't yeah. act like that and not be anxious or stressed out. And so in an yeah. attempt to reach as many people in for today's show as possible, yeah. help, help us understand how someone they can get into the work when they don't perceive that they have, I'll call it an anxiety problem. Um, maybe mm-hmm. on the, maybe in, in another frame it's, uh, where they have a, a lack of productivity or a lack of meaning, or maybe there's mm-hmm. some other words that you can attribute to it, but we need to help. Uh, you know, my, my belief is that 99% of the population is struggling here. So help us 
lasso everyone here. Yeah. Uh, you know, this book doesn't cover clinical anxiety. You know, the, the clinical anxiety, um, you know, if, if you do feel like you have an anxiety disorder, it, it, it's definitely something to seek professional help over. Even if you feel like your mind is uh, an uncomfortable place to spend some time, you know, that's, that's such a, you know, a, a great cue just to become more curious about the conditions that are causing that. Uh, inside of your mind and, and find somebody professionally who can help you out in a situation like that. What, what I find in my own life is that anxiety is almost always subclinical. You know, it, it, it's, it pervades what you do and you often only notice it when it breaks through that conscious barrier uh, to become evident to you through something that happens in your own life. You know, maybe you're going through a really stressful period at, at work and you really you find it difficult to focus because you're so bound up that it's impossible to do so. Uh, maybe it's something like giving a presentation and you can't think about anything else all week. Uh, but I think the modern anxiety that we face is subtle. And it affects us in these subtle ways that are incremental, but those increments can prove profound in practice. You know, what, one of those ways is our working memory capacity. This is, this is the part of our mind that we use to be creative all day long. We use this, our working memory capacity is just our short-term, immediate-term mental scratch pad. And if I were to ask you to multiply 12 by 32 in your head, um, if you're able to do so, you know, you might close your eyes and visualize carrying the one, you know, uh, and you, how you do so, how you do that is by using your working memory capacity. And anxiety, when we're experiencing a subclinical level of it, we... It takes us about, you know, our, our working memory shrinks by about 20%. And you might think, eh, okay, you know, whatever. Uh, the 20% is not a lot. But if you extrapolate that over the course of the day, eight hours of work now takes us around 10 hours to get through. And if you schedule eight hours each day, you might find yourself working overtime. You might find yourself you know, not being present in what you're doing or just kind of scrolling through social media and finding that you're busier, but you're less productive and that you have less time than before. The cause of that is anxiety. And the fascinating thing about that, that I found in my own life that was actually very difficult to wade through uh, is there is a point where anxiety becomes comfortable where we start to, and it's this familiarity bias. So the more we encounter a piece of information that is familiar, the more comfortable we become with it. And the more we see it as something that furthers our goals primitively, right? Mm -hmm. We see it primitively, even though it doesn't. And so by the 500th time we go to the news website of our choosing, it becomes just a part of our day and we don't really realize the effect it has on our mind anymore. And when stress becomes comfortable, anxiety becomes comfortable because it's ingrained within the habits, the, the tapestry of our day. And so, you know, the, the level of clinical anxiety that exists above this subclinical level of anxiety is not 
something that I cover in the book, though these techniques uh, have been proven in the research to help with that, though that's not my area of expertise. Uh, I, I do think it's worth deconstructing the parts of our working environment that make us significantly less present and productive in these subtle ways that produce these incremental results that are, are profound you know, in how much less they make us productive. So it's tough with awareness because you notice the delta when you improve, but you don't always notice the delta when you don't. So if your energy, you know, is, let's say you eat like a big Indian buffet for lunch every day next week, and you have 75% of the energy that you usually do, um, you might not notice that actually. Because you can still project an air of productivity to your uh, evaluating part of your mind that you're productive in, in the form of busyness. Our mind can't distinguish between busyness and genuine progress. But if you care about creating work that makes a difference, you're going to want that extra 25% to be able to bring as much as you possibly can of yourself to whatever it is that you're doing. Because uh, ultimately, like that productivity is about it's about intention but with with the goal of optimizing the the benefits and the contributions of our work it, it's so we can do work that makes a difference and the things that affect our productivity in subtle ways are not sexy they're you know calm is less sexy than 2xing your productivity but a it's you know actually based in research so it's not bullshit uh, but b we actually feel different and more present and like we can enjoy our work and make a bigger difference and become present with whatever it is that we're doing. I think there's beauty in that, you know, work, especially when we do creative work. And this is something that again came up a lot in the research is values, right? You know, this is whenever I do creative work, which I consider my books to be, I, you know, when we feel <clears throat> like we're manifesting our values through our actions, that's what meaning is. That's what meaning is. It's manifested values through action. And if we can connect that with that each and every day, we're, we're going to feel pretty fired up. Mm. Yeah. So I'm going to pull on that, that, that creativity throughout a little bit because yeah. values through action is... I think that is very, very elegant. When we apply ourselves, what, what I guess, help me unpack and understand the difference between and why creative work gives us juice, whereas grindy work that is just yeah. ticking a box, especially if it's ticking a box for somebody else, can leave us feeling empty and Maybe uh, the spectrum or the the journey to burnout might yeah. be you know different in length for creative work and yeah. and I'm looking for an argument if there is one in here that yeah. you know how, how the the value of creative work yeah it's well first of all there's an incredible value in creating something out of nothing <laughs> you know that's what moves the world forward that's what creates culture and um you know creation for creation's sake is most definitely a value and there are these basic values that we have uh there's 10 and i have a list i'm, I'm cheating I, I pulled these up as, as you're asking the question um there, there's 10 basic values though um and this was a theory of value from saul schwartz and he found that depending on how conservative 
uh, versus, well, so, so there's kind of two spectrums, uh, how conservative we are versus whether we want things to improve or be different and whether we're focused on improving ourselves or others, you know? And so there are 10 basic values. So self-direction is most definitely one we feel as though we can manifest through creation. Uh, that's the first value. Stimulation is a value. Hedonism, achievement is another value. Power is a value. Security, conformity, tradition, benevolence, and universalism. So we all kind of have a different gradient of values. But when we're doing work that's creative. You know, there are some values that are more universal and held by more people uh, and others that are held by fewer people. So power is an, ex is an example of something that isn't really held by as many people as something like uh, self-direction. Uh, you know, this idea of independent thought and action, this idea of creation. And so, you know, if we look to where what fires us up, it's definitely the act of creation and being able yeah. to express this self-direction through whatever it is that we're doing. But with burnout, the fascinating thing about burnout is how much fluff there is about it. So when, when I burnt out uh, in my own work, when I hit this wall of anxiety and exhaustion, cynicism, and being unproductive. Um, I looked to a lot of the books on burnout out there, but I, I didn't learn as much as I did through the actual uh, research articles on burnout. Uh, you know, you can read a few journal articles about a topic and sometimes discover more about that topic than you can through two or three books on that. And I found burnout to be um, the uh, a phenomenon kind of like that, even though there's so much in the zeitgeist about this, this idea. Uh, and full credit where credit is due. Christina Maslach uh, has been studying burnout for decades. And you know, she, must, I, she must be burnt out. On <laughs> yeah, she's probably so sick of talking about it. <laughs> uh, fascinating thing about her is she, you know, the Stanford prison experiment? Oh, yeah. Well, um, well so nobody, when it was running, kind of questioned its morality. Um, but she visited at some point within the experiment. And she said, this has to stop. There's no way. Or this, this can't continue like it is. Um, and she told Philip Zimbardo, who was running the experiment, that it had to end. And it and she ended the Stanford prison experiment. And she actually went on to marry Philip Zimbardo, maybe... Maybe she was thinking, okay, he can't. Let's make sure he doesn't do another. <laughs> I'm going to stick <laughs> no, with this guy for a long time. Yeah. yeah, seriously, I got to watch over this fella. Um, but interestingly, de you know, a, a decade or two after that, she would go on to uh, make what, what I consider to be the largest contributions in the field of burnout research, including the Maslach Burnout Inventory, which is the most commonly used instrument for measuring burnout. Um, and what she found in her research is that there's six main areas of our work that lead us. Again, remember, burnout is the spectrum. Burnout on one side, engagement, presence on the other. And the more of these factors that are in alignment with who we are and what we're doing, the more engaged we are and the less burnt out we are. Uh, the first one is workload. And so the more work we have on our plate, the more likely we are to burn out. You know, when we have a bit more work than we have time to do it in, that creates a phenomenon called time pressure, which is another interesting idea uh, that is a whole other rabbit hole or whatever you call it, black hole of 
discussion. Mm-hmm. But uh, but workload, you know, limiting workload is the most commonly given uh, uh, clinical intervention when somebody's diagnosable as burnt out. So workload, you know, but if it's roughly aligned to how much you have uh, a capacity for, you feel engaged. Uh, lack of control is another one. So the less control you feel you have over your work, the more likely you are uh, to be burnt out. But again, you know, when we do creative work, we have that fire under us. We have control over uh, what we do often, uh, usually how we do it, you know, the the vantage point we have, the, the approach we take, we can bring our own unique spin to it, which is amazing. And often we define our own workload, which helps in that factor. Uh, reward is the third factor. Uh, this is financial reward, but it's also uh, it's also being recognized for the work that we do. Uh, so reward is the third factor. Community is the fourth factor. Uh, so whether we feel like we can connect with the people that we work closely with, creates, you know, with creative work, there's often more of a sense of community. Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes the work is more solo. So that might move you closer to the burnout side of the spectrum. Uh, fairness is the fifth factor. So whether we're treated fairly, whether we're, our work is appraised fairly, and values is actually the sixth factor. So the more we can feel like we're manifesting our values through our action, the more meaningful work becomes, uh, the less likely we are to burn out, the more likely we are to be engaged. And so with creative work, uh, you know, you can kind of run down that list. We have more control. Uh, we can manifest these creative values through our actions. Uh, we can often find this sense of community. And so it's no wonder that we feel so fired up when we're doing it, you know. And, you know, we, we it's interesting because creative work is often more aversive at the same time. And so we, we procrastinate a bit more on it often too. Uh, so it, it works against engagement in that way. But it's this interesting concoction when it comes to burnout. Mm. And yeah, that is one of the reasons I was really inspired and interested in your work because of the the impact that it has on you know our each of our creative capacities and the creative community at large. Uh, to that end, there's um, you talk in the book about savoring. Yeah, and and to me, this is sort of. Uh, you, know, you talk at length in, about the research and the science behind it. Yeah, uh, I'm. I identify with the the human experience, the empirical experience of like a you know great sip of red wine or you know a, an amazing taste of food or a moment. You know, I I have confessed that uh, I got a little puppy, a new puppy in the house. And oh, when as yes, of when as of we're uh, we've. He's been in our household for seven weeks, and he is oh. fifteen weeks old. So he's just a little little oh, sweetheart. His, his name's Bodie, but I have, you know, this the ability to savor this little moment. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I was walking behind him this morning, pitch black, raining, didn't care because his little butt was just so cute, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. It, and it just you know it made me, you know, thinking in advance of our conversation and the role that that savoring moments yeah um there's something beautiful about yeah. you know this awareness and this h- how we can use savoring to be more present to enjoy life more yeah. and in a way to sort of as an antidote to all this anxiety that yeah. uh, you know we find ourselves swimming in sometimes 
Well, th- this was one of the most delightful research fields I encountered in writing this book. And, you know, savoring is the science of converting uh, a positive experience into positive emotions. And I love that definition so much because just because we experience something positive doesn't mean we'll derive any satisfaction from it whatsoever. You know, you have people who who live these lives that look uh, so amazing on the surface, but yet they're miserable because they can't savor the things that are actually present in their lives. Uh, and then, you know, you, you then meet somebody who's maybe a bit less living a bit less of a luxurious life, but they wake up and they make a cup of coffee and it's like that cup, it's like they've won the lottery when they take the first sip. And then they, they've, you know, spend, uh, you know, the morning with their, their puppy, their kitten. We just, we actually just got a kitten two oh, weeks ago. Nice. Her name is Eleanor. Uh, oh, so how precious. Precious. Named after uh, Eleanor, the Eleanor who won the first Nobel Prize in economics, because my my wife is a professor of economics. Uh, but savoring is th- this beautiful art, and there's so many different types of it too. You know, there's luxuriating in an, in an experience, uh, which a cat and a puppy does beautifully. Actually, yeah, you know, they right. luxuriate quite a bit. There's Thanksgiving. Right, giving thanks, feeling gra- gratitude for for everything that we have. There's marveling at something, just being in in awe of something. So there's so many different forms of savoring. There's even we can even savor the past or the future. And so when we savor the past, anything, how does that work? Isn't savoring? But they count as savoring because we do it in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we do, when we savor the past, it's called reminiscence, right? Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. Uh, we're recalling a, a beautiful memory, a, a sunset that we saw, a conversation. We had a meal we had. You know, looking through photos is a, one of my favorite ways of doing this. And we can savor the future. So something that is upcoming. Uh, so that's called anticipation. So we can count that down the days to an event. And the research shows that actually counting down the days to an event leads us to savor the actual event more because doing so leads us to develop uh, effective memory, memory traces in our mind that we paint over with the experience that we eventually have. Um, and so this, this art of savoring, all you have to do is make a list of all the things in your life that you love to enjoy. Uh, and here's the fascinating thing. <clears throat> the wealthier somebody is, the less likely they are to uh, have a savoring ability. Uh, savoring is actually a skill we can get better at. So in other words, we can get better at deriving satisfaction from our everyday experiences in our life. Uh, and I think there's such beauty in that. What, one of my favorite things to ask somebody when I meet them for the first time is, what do you savor the most? And I, I found that that truth from the research, that wealthier people report a lower savoring ability, really does hold true. And this is an experiment that you can, can anybody can conduct. Uh, ask the well-off people you know versus the, the people who are less well-off what they savor the most. And chances are the ones who uh, are less well-off will enjoy their actual lives more. And it's kind of this 
irony that comes from this this mindset of more, where we're always craving more of what we have, uh, where our life is centered around dopamine instead of that presence. This is the the chemical underpinning of that less ability to to savor something, um, and scarcity also leads us to savor something more. Uh, if you have two pieces of chocolate versus four, you're going to enjoy the two pieces of chocolate more per unit than you would that four because you have that scarcity. Uh, if, if you, you know, if you like chips or something, try uh, as an experiment, one hour, just set aside five chips and see how much you enjoy them. Then the next hour, have the rest of the bag and see how much you enjoy it. You know, chances are you're going to you're gonna report a lowering savoring ability, but just make a list of everything you love to savor, the, the, the puppies in your life, the cats in your life, the board games, the people, the, the walks around town, the lattes that you love, the drinks you love, the meals you love. Um, for me, usually comes down to food and people. That's just probably <laughs> how my mind works. Uh, but savoring is a shortcut to presence. And, and the better we become at savoring stuff, the more engaged we become. And, you know, you don't have to worry. Your goals will be waiting for you on the other side of enjoying things. And the activity actually leads you to become more present and more engaged with what you do, regardless of whether you luxuriate or marvel or reminisce or anticipate something. There is beauty, like just profound beauty, but also these uh, practical, tangible benefits to enjoying life that are just great, just incredible. Mm. All right. You said something. This is the, oh. really, the last topic oh. that I want to excavate. What did I say? You said something that is that I find fascinating because there's tension. And this is the beautiful thing about being human, right? Is is we can <laughs> something can be true and and um, we can have multiple interpretations of an event, for example. We, yeah. it, being human is complex. And so it is in this complexity that I'm sort of I locuted around this idea of, of productivity. So productivity, you know, there's, there's a line in some of the marketing materials for your book that talk about how productivity advice works yeah. and how we need it more than ever but it's vital that we develop our capacity for calm. So it's, yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's an inherent tension here. Yeah. And when I hear in your words the value of presence, yeah. I want to understand the, the relationship between presence and I, well, I'll just use a, a, maybe a, it's a little bit trite, but sort of the human being versus the human doing. Yeah. And so if, if as a productivity expert, what you're advocating for is calm and presence, yeah. how is that not antithetical? So help me understand yeah. the relationship. There. Yeah. Well, presence is the process through which we actually become productive, right? Mm. If you're trying to do something, if your intention is to do something, and we, we all have moments like this where we intend to, you know, edit 500 photos or uh, you know, weed through it, uh, an article that we're writing or do anything that's creative. Often we can't muster the presence to do that. We can't show up. You know, our mind is resisting the task maybe because it's at a lower stimulation height, wh whatever the reason, right? And the fact of the matter is presence is what productivity is all about, right? That is where the rubber meets the road. And 
so much. I, I'd say 70, 80, maybe even 90% of productivity, maybe 80% of productivity advice is about cultivating the conditions for presence. It's about managing your time, your attention, your energy, which I consider to be the three main ingredients with productivity. Uh, it's managing those in a way that you cultivate the conditions to be able to show up to whatever it is that you intend to do. And so presence is what productivity is all about. There is, you know, this, this culture that we have, this hustling culture that I, I'm personally really not a fan of, uh, especially looking at uh, a lot of the, the proper research on calm and productivity. You know, when we do work with our minds rather than with our hands, uh, hustling becomes significantly less important and can be even detrimental uh, to our overall intentions, right? Because we we push ourselves to do more, 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 faster, faster, faster. Uh, again, instead of doing the right things deliberately and with intention and calmly, you know, not constantly looking for threats around us, not in a, 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 this fray of activity where we hope to eke out some productivity amidst our immense uh, fray of busyness, right? And, you know, it goes back to how we, we think about our productivity in the first place. Because one, one of the truths about productivity is we are terrible at measuring how productive we are. Uh, and we tend to look at proxy measures like, how exhausted am I at the end of the day? Oh, if I'm exhausted, I must have been productive. Or how busy was I today? Uh, you know, even if I just answered email all day long, if I was busy, I'm I, I must be productive, right? But intentionality, the intentions that we set every day, and also, you know, before we do something, those should be the benchmark against which we measure mm. our progress towards productivity. Mm. Um, and you know, presence is all, you know, it, intention and presence work together in beautiful ways. You know, intention kind of hands the baton to presence, and then we hunker down on something. And productivity books, productivity advice is great. And I, I really do think we need it more than ever because we need to have these conditions to be able to cultivate this presence. But if you have the ability to be present with whatever it is that you intend to do, you never have to pick up a book on productivity. Maybe unless you want to decide what to be productive on in the first place, right? The 10, 20, 30% of other advice. But the rest of productivity is about cultivating our capacity for progress, right? And that's what uh, presence is where the rubber meets the road on that. Mm. I love that. That made me lean into, you know, the idea in a world that has bathed itself in hustle, yeah. um, the ability to be present. And I think, you know, I'm reminded of, you know, the effectiveness, say, of monks in, you know, creating drawing, elaborate drawings in the sand or stacking pebbles mm. or, you know, any, you know, n number of tasks that, that, that they're, when they're so present and focused, seems uh, like no one ever, or I guess in this moment, this idea of like accusing a monk of not being productive when they're in their their zen state i don't, yeah. I, don't I don't have the experience of hearing people <laughs> you know watch them 
to those things. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the ideas that struck me is so profound that, uh, the busyness, you know, busyness is actually, you know, more of a disease and not really a, it's a, it's a, mm-hmm. a fake proxy, as you talked about this idea of, um, of, of, of connection to the work of, uh, savoring to me yeah. is incredibly valuable. Um, my goal with our conversation today was to help the creator the entrepreneurial audience, the people who identify as such that are listening to the show right now, understand and resonate with the value of calm. I know that the yeah. more comfortable in my own skin that I become, the, the calmer I feel this sort of, it's almost like a tractor beam instead of, you know, Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. But yeah. I wanted to personally thank you for putting your work out into the world um, and helping make the case for a calmer, kinder, and, you know, based on your definition, you're ultimately more productive human experience. So thank you. And this is, a, you know, the last thing that I will ask on our way out is, are there elements of your book, how, how to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times? Is there anything that we didn't talk about today that is in your book that you really feel like, you know what, hey, Chase, your, your people need to know this before oh. you sign off? Well, it's it's tough because when you zoom out from a topic like Calm and look at what affects it pretty much everything affects calm <laughs> and so yeah. you know that, that was one of the challenges of of writing this book is when so many factors of our life influence how uh, calm or anxious or burnt out or engaged uh, we are how do you zero in on the ones that actually uh, make the most progress uh, lead us to make the most progress in the in the directions that we want and, you know, I tried to center the book around what was counterintuitive, um, but may, maybe just one that we haven't focused on, uh, just a quickie, a quickie, is to mind the time you spend in the digital versus analog worlds. Um, and so much of creation now is digital. Uh, I do pretty much all of my creation in the digital world, uh, you know, whether it's creating an email or whether it's writing a book. Uh, but... I would mind the different activities you do in each because there's kind of a Venn diagram of sorts you can make with the analog only activity circle and the digital only activity circle. And where they meet in the middle are these activities you can do in both worlds. You know, the analog only ones are like brushing your teeth and going on a walk through nature and really experiencing the benefits. The digital only ones are like typing an email and, and, uh, I don't know, do reading the digital news or, you know, there's, but in the middle, that I think is the area worth focusing on in bringing more activities into your analog world. Uh, On average, we spend 13 to 13.5 hours every day looking at screens of the 16 or 17 hours that we're properly awake. That is too much in my opinion, especially when you look at, at what allows us to achieve calm and achieve a presence with what we're doing. Uh, that's too damn high. <laughs> uh, and so anything that you can do in the uh, analog world that lives at the middle of that Venn diagram, uh, whether that's journaling, 
doing that in an analog way with a fancy fountain pen, maybe. Uh, it could be keeping your daily to-do list. It could be playing games, set, you know, swapping out your video games for a board game night with friends that you're playing with online anyway. Uh, it could be, you know, to, you, we all have activities in the middle of this Venn diagram that we can bring into our analog lives and find that meaning. You know, in my opinion, the digital world exists to make our lives more efficient, and the analog world exists to make our lives more meaningful. And so you won't just get to experience the uh, the slowness of these tasks. You'll also get to feel the meaning behind them, too. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful way of wrapping up. Thank you very much. I, I remember your, your TED talk that I was watching prior to us recording today starts off with how much screen time and that is yeah. a startling yeah. <laughs> startling <Right> number <laughs> wow uh didn't need to know that thanks chris yeah um, talking about guilt that's right <laughs> you know that's right um so hopefully you're not watching this hopefully you're listening to it and doing some other things uh with that's your right. hands um in an analog world Thank you so much for being a guest on the show, Chris, and for the work that you've done around helping us calm our mind. Again, most recent book, How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. Uh, thanks again for being on the show. Aside from directing people to the book, is there somewhere else where I may direct their attention or where you can take this moment to share with our community of listeners and watchers where you'd like our attention? Yeah, yeah the book is... Uh in my opinion, and I'm totally biased, I, I think it's the best thing I've ever created. And it's also the most personal thing I've ever created. And I think you'll find it helpful. Uh, so yeah, I hope you consider picking it. You don't have to, you know, <laughs> I hope you consider doing so. You must. <laughs> you must. Yeah. I demand on high. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the book is called How to Calm Your Mind. And my website is chrisbailey.com. And uh, I also do a podcast with my wife called Time and Attention. And uh, so you can check that out too. No pressure, but uh, I hope you'll join. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. So from Chris and I, he hailing from Canada and me from essentially South Canada. I'm in Seattle today. Um, we both uh, bid you have a good day and adieu. Until next time. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. Mm -hmm.